Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me. I am writing a book called Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. This is a free book at lifeovercoffee.com. You're welcome to get it. We have several downloadable books, digital books, and I want you to have all of them. Every one of them is free. Uh, are free. They, they, they're our gift to you. I just recently heard that there's a group of ladies in Bozeman, Montana that's going through my book, uh, Boasting in Weakness, and that is a great idea. And so if you are looking for devotional material, if you're looking for a small group study, uh, if you're looking for counseling resources, uh, uh, homework assignments, for those of you who do biblical counseling or discipleship and you're coming alongside someone, then perhaps you could consider the digital books that we have in our store. And I want you to have them. They're all yours. They're free. This one that I'm doing is Loving Me, the the Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. And so I want to share with you one of the chapters from that book. It is called The Fallacy and the Futility of Self-Esteem. Self-esteem teaching, it's been around for a long time. You know all about it. Everybody does. It's been inculcated into our psyche for multi-generations, I think. I mean, I came up in the 60s and early 70s and the best I can remember, I, I was hearing about self-esteem even then. I wasn't a Christian at that time, and so I imbibed fully on that doctrine. Of course, it only led to disastrous results because, well, the big idea with self-esteem is that you're spending uh, your time thinking about yourself. Loving me, I am number one. Well, that's a bad teaching, and it will send you to some dark places, and that's why I'm writing this book, Loving Me the hidden agenda of self-esteem. It is one of the central planks of the culture's gospel, which is their attempt to feel better about themselves. I mean, they're just like us. They realize they need help. We realize that we need help. The big issue or the point is, which well are you going to drink out of? I mean, thankfully, if you are born again, you have been drinking the water that Christ gives. And of course, self-esteem, that central plank in their social gospel, well, uh, they're drinking from a cistern that cannot hold water. But as ambassadors of Christ, we must know how to engage our cultural friends. We want them to have the same gospel that we have. We want to help them while, of course, keeping an eye on their version of psychology. We have to ensure that we don't fall into their traps, and their traps are easy to fall into. The fallacy and futility of the self-esteem gospel are everywhere. And so learning to debunk it with competence and compassion is every believer's responsibility. Yeah, it takes both. We want to understand the Bible and how to apply it, especially when we are evangelizing our cultural friends or we are discipling our Christian brothers and sisters. But we want to do it with compassion as well. And so that is our responsibility. And so it is twofold. Make sure we don't fall into their ditch and also make sure we are engaging the culture. You see, without those biblical filters, it is so easy to take the world's ways for a spin, especially if the Christian is not adept at applying God's Word personally or practically. Now, the practical application of God's Word, I mean, what we're talking about is biblical psychology. 
Psychology is two words put together, psyche, which means soul, and logos, the study of. We have a huge logos family within the Christian world. Theology, the study of God. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Hermeneology, the study of sin. Anthropology, the study of humanity. Well, psychology is the study of the soul. And for the Christian, the Bible applied practically and personally to our souls is the purest form of psychology. There is not a better psychology book ever written and in the world today than the Bible. God created the soul, and then God gave us the word concerning the soul, which is the Bible. And so when you take the Bible and apply it to someone's soul, you are practicing the purest form of psychology. Now, this is something that we want to mature into. It does not come easy. It doesn't come without discipline. The rigor of learning the Bible and practically applying it to our lives, well, then that's going to open the way if we don't know how to do that, for the culture to peddle its view of psychology. And that is a big warning. Of course, the temptation is easier than you might think to imbibe in their cistern that does not hold water. You see, their way, it doesn't require the hard work of connecting the Bible to our personal lives. And who doesn't like easy I think one of the problems here is that too many Christians believe that if they show up on Sunday morning at their church meeting and if they hear the Word of God preached, that it, that is all they need. For Tuesday morning when they get in an argument with their spouse or, to, or Thursday evening when their son is rebelling and they do not know what to say, or maybe they are struggling with their own personal struggles, well, then they soon realize that maybe I need more than the preaching of God's Word. I need the application of it, too. Knowledge applied is a two-prong necessity if we want to grow in wisdom. Just filling our silos with knowledge of the Bible by sitting and soaking on Sunday morning, it's not enough. We also need to fill up that other silo. It's called application. And for the Christian who is growing in knowledge and practically applying that knowledge, then they're able to work through conflict resolution with their spouse on Tuesday morning or provide a good answer to their rebelling son. They're also able to work through their personal dysfunction because they understand the soul book, the pure psychology book, God's Word. The Bible doesn't teach self-esteem. Did you know that? And that should be the most significant red flag of all. It is just not taught in the Bible. But the silence of the Bible on this postmodern doctrine, it does not deter the, the Christian self-esteem advocate from trumpeting this dangerous doctrine within the church. And there are many Christians that they will become emotive to hear some of the things that I'm saying now, especially about self-esteem. Uh, they advocate it, but that's all they know. They have imbibed on the culture for so long. They have pursued those self-help books so many times that they don't realize that this is a dangerous doctrine. But God went to great lengths to free us from spending so much time 
thinking about ourselves. And that is what self-esteem does. It turns us inward into a darkened cave. It leads us into the hopelessness of despair as we continue to stare into our fallen total depravity. God wants us to look upward and outward. He wants us to think about him and others most of all. I mean, he even simplified the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament by restating them in four words. Love God, love neighbor, as Jesus was talking about in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. It's from God's perspective, human success and personal wholeness happens when we master those four words. And as you think about those four words of loving God and loving others, it does have a distinct upward and outward focus. And there is an obvious point or an aspect of that that is missing. Not be so focused on ourselves. But the self-esteem advocate, their retort will be, well, Esteeming yourself is the opposite of self-loathing. And so we want to esteem ourselves so that we don't spend our days self-loathing. Well, self-esteem and self-loathing is kind of opposite, sort of. But before refuting their doctrine, it might be helpful to understand why the world is groping for the walls like blind men creating a doctrine that cannot hold water. I mean, mainly, they need something besides biblical psychology because they reject God's Word. I mean, it's not as though they can sit in the corner with a dunce cap on. You can't reject God's Word and say, I'm going to reject God too. I'm not going to follow Him or His Word. And you can't live in that void. You can't live in that vacuum. And so you have to create stuff. If you're going to reject creationism, for example, well, you got to come up with something. And so they come up with evolution. If you're going to reject God's Word, you have to create your own psychology. And they have done this. They have their Bible. It's called the DSM-5-TR, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Number five, it has evolved since, I think, 1950, 1953 when they created the first DSM-1, and now they have the DSM-5-TR, which means text revised. And so they had a DSM-5 in 2013, and now they have revised it, and it continues to evolve. They have to. They have to devise a method to understand the psyche, the soul. And so they have their own Bible, their own worldview, their own presupposition, their own method, and it doesn't hold water. And so self-esteem, in their view, it fits the bill perfectly because in actuality, it does exactly what, it, what they wanted to do, to focus on the individual. And you will find with most of the beliefs and the systems that the culture has, it has this native inward self-focus. And the unwitting design of self-esteem and self-loathing, I mean, both of those are turned inward, but the unwitting design of that is to ensure the capturing and incarcerating of the soul in a hermetically sealed universe of self. And so whether you are a self-loather or a self-esteemer, you're both looking in the same direction, and it is the wrong direction. 
The Bible presents a better way to think about ourselves. It's called made in the image of God, what we call the Imago Dei. In Genesis 1.27, we learn about being made in the image of God. Think about that for just a moment. Reflect upon the Imago Dei. That is a profound way to think about God and His creation. God made us in His image. That is profound. You see, self-esteem perpetuates self-focus, while the Imago Dei, it turns our thoughts upward toward God and outward toward those whom He created. And we are overwhelmed, we're stunned that, that God would think about us, that God would make us in His image, in the similitude of God. And so as we turn our thoughts from ourselves and focus them on God, then we begin to see the world He made through His eyes rather than ours. And when we see God's creation the way that God sees His creation, I'm talking about humanity. When we see humanity the way that God sees humanity as made in the image of God, that changes how we think about God and people. It is stunning to the Christian that the Lord would set us apart from the rest of His creative order. And out of that humble God-awareness of what He did, it grows respect for what He created. When we see, I mean, say God created this tumbler here. By the way, this is our Life Over Coffee tumbler, which you must have. But the person who created this, if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we are going to have a mutual affection and, and a respect for his creative act. We're not going to dishonor his creative act if we love God rightly. And when we recognize that God created us in his image, it affects how we think about him, and it affects uh, uh, how we think about his creation. We don't value ourselves or others less, but what we do is we see a miraculous blessedness of the Imago Dei, which circumvents any desire for self-loathing, and it accentuates our admiration, our respect for God and others. How can we self-loathe when we recognize that we have been made in the image of God? You see, when we respect humanity, when we recognize that humanity was made in the image of God, that sets the foundation for us not disrespecting ourselves or loathing ourselves or not disrespecting any other person. Self-esteem does not enhance our thoughts about God. Self-esteem does not enhance our thoughts about other people because we're too preoccupied esteeming ourselves. You see, the culture, the wordsmithers and the label makers, those folks that come up with things like self-esteem, they do not factor God and His Word into their psychology. 
Of course, none of this would matter if Christians were less in tune with the culture while dialed into God's Word more. And that's really the problem. My desire here is not to change the way the culture thinks because they can't change how they think until they become born again. But the problem is Christians think like the culture. Christians take things like self-esteem and they smuggle, smuggle it into their psychology doctrine. We like hijacking their words and ways into our understanding of biblical psychology, even twisting their language to suit our fads. Illustration, theologian John Piper made this mistake when he tried to re-event the word hedonism a few years ago in his book by reframing it as Christian hedonism. Uh, that's that's nice. That's a fad. That's quirky. I mean, what he did is he instilled an unnecessary tension in the believer's mind. Thankfully, it only caught on for a season, and now nobody talks like that anymore. Pulling an unnecessary word from the culture, like hedonism or self-esteem, and inserting it into our Christian's vocabulary, it's not helpful, and it's not wise. The Bible has given us all we need to think rightly about God, about ourselves, and about others. Words have presuppositions, and we need to keep that in view. A presupposition is an interpretive lens. It's like a pair of glasses. Everybody has an interpretive lens. Everybody has a unique pair of glasses that gives them a presupposition for how they interpret the world. For the Christian, we want our lenses to be clean or saturated or built from the Word of God. If we don't do that, then we will start bringing in words like hedonism, and it will really convolute, and it will mar our lenses, and it will mess up our thinking because we're not using biblical precision, specifically as we think about psychology. Sometimes we can outsmart ourselves to our detriment. Now, I am not suggesting that we should refrain from all everyday human language. Are you saying that we shouldn't use any of the culture's words? No. We live in the culture. We speak the culture's language, whatever country that you come from. But I am saying that some of their words are not helpful. Let me give you an illustration of using a cultural word and, and why it's wise to use that word, but sometimes we have to help a person to understand how to think about that word correctly. For example, let's say that a woman who went through horrible abuse as a child from her father. Well, what we don't want today, what we don't want to say is that don't use the word father, that's a cultural word. Later in life, she becomes a Christian and her friends introduce her to God the Father. Well, she already knows what a father is because she had a horrible example of what a father is. And when her friends tell her about her new heavenly father, she struggles to relate well to him because of that word. Now, the solution for her is not to remove that word from her vocabulary. No, the solution for her is to learn to apply the differences between an abusive father, a, a heinous, horrible, earthly man, and a loving Father, our loving and gracious and kind Heavenly Father. We live in the world. We use their language when appropriate. But when it comes to soul care, 
Biblical precision is our call. And there, is, there are some words, there is some language, there's some vocabulary that we should never smuggle in to how we speak about transformation. Self-esteem would be one of those terms that we should not use. And so every, every situation requires wisdom. With our abused friend, we would carefully and compassionately redefine the word father for her. Paul did this for his Jewish friends who were new to Christianity. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 8. In those 13 verses there, they were struggling with what to do with the meat their new brothers and sisters were eating. Sometimes we have no choice but to redefine the word like father or an idea like meat because it confuses the person because of their former associations with that word. The abused lady had a former association with the word father and it, it creeped her out. It really distorted her thinking when she began to use that same word with Heavenly Father. Well, the Jewish believers had a former association with meat. And when they came into Christianity, well, they used the word meat, but it really messed them up. It was like an anchor upon them. And so Paul wanted them to learn that uh, this is okay. And so they had to be retrained according to that idea. But self-esteem should not be part of a Christian's vocabulary. And so when you meet with a Christian that the culture has indoctrinated, you can show them a new and a better way to understand the soul. And you can do this without becoming the word police, without playing whack-a-mole with them, beating them over the head with a mallet. Typically, I rarely say anything about a person's use of secular words like, like self-esteem, especially when they're coming for help. I just don't care to be the word police. A lousy word is not my cue to go on the offensive by telling them that it's a bad word. The word is not their biggest problem. And we don't need to exacerbate their fear of man by mandating that they use the proper word. Using biblical methodologies, we can compassionately and patiently teach them the truth to help them toward transformation. Maybe later we can clean up their vocabulary. Too many biblical counselors shoot at people like targets because of their poor word choices while missing the mark by missing the opportunity to care for them. And so, no, we don't want to be word policey here, and that's not my point in sharing these things with you. But in the appropriate time and context, and when it's right for the person, they need to carefully understand what this word self-esteem means and how it is unhelpful in every way inside the Christian nomenclature of words. Made in the image of God is the correct language. The Imago Dei is the best way to think about who we are ontologically, our state of being. I mean, for starters, it teaches biblical respect for every person, saved or lost. When you think about a person made in the image of God, like myself, or you thinking about yourself made in the image of God, again, as I said earlier, you can't, you can't, you can't self-loathe. And if you do, well, that will be the starting point to get out of that trap. 
made in the image of God. And you can also respect other people. Now, some people will say, well, you know, how can I respect my political enemies, for example? I despise them with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, you can despise their ideas. You can despise what they teach. You can despise the policies that they implement. You can vote them out of office. You can be against them in every possible way, every biblical way. But we should never disrespect them because they're made in the image of God. You might not like them. You might not love them. But we should not disrespect them. Now, this is what James was saying. You'll have to take this up with James in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We bless God with our mouths and we curse man who is made in the image of God. And James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be. When a person understands the value of the individual because of who created them, it becomes a challenge to hate themselves or to hate other people. I talked about this earlier in another chapter in my book, Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. You see, it's not about the painting. It is about the painter. The painting has value because of the painter. If Rembrandt painted the painting, the only reason that painting has any value is because of Rembrandt, the painter. The reason we have value is not because of us. We have no intrinsic value. We are totally depraved. But we're made in the image of God, and that means something because of our Creator, because of our painter. We cannot hate ourselves. We cannot hate other people. When the Imago Dei correctly calibrates and aligns our thinking, now perhaps... It would be helpful to take a self-assessment test right now to see how the Imago Dei manages your thoughts, creating an attitude toward others, especially those with whom you disagree. And so I want to ask you a few questions. I think there's four or five here. And you can self-evaluate yourself to see how the Imago Dei manages your thinking, especially when you're thinking about other people who are also made in the image of God. So question number one, is there someone you are sinfully angry with currently and you refuse to repent to them, though you know that you should go to them and ask for their forgiveness? Well, if you understand that the person that you sinned against, the thing that you damaged, or in this case, the person that you damaged was made in the image of God. If we understand that correctly, then we're going to go to them as fast as we can when appropriate, and we're going to ask forgiveness because they were made in the image of God. Number two, do you view yourself better than a cultural person. And, and so think of someone in the culture, somebody that you, you know, and you think that you're better than them. Well, we're not better than anyone. As Paul said, what have you received that was not given to you? We cannot stand in the temple smoting our breast, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that other person over there. You may have more money, you may have a higher IQ, you may have more privileges than the other person, you may not have been in jail as many times as they have. 
but they were made in the image of God. Self-righteousness is the bane of humanity as we look down on other people. The ground is level around the cross. We have nothing apart from the grace of God. Everybody is the same. And to look down on another person, no matter how much you disagree with them, is a heinous sin. I'm not suggesting that you ever agree with them, but we must respect them because they were created in the image of God. Question number three. Do you feel superior to people not of your demographic? You have your clique. You have your group. You have the folks that you hang with. You have a part particular kind of people. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should have a clique. You should have a particular kind of people. You should have an innermost circle, a demographic that you like more than the other, that you associate more than the other. My demographic is the Christian community, and even within that Christian community, there are stripes that I just don't spend a lot of time with. And that, that uh, demographic gets smaller and smaller as I have my, my own local church. And within my local church, it gets smaller as I have more intimate friends than everybody in our church. With that said, do you feel superior to people not of your demographic? Again, everyone is made in the image of God. There is value in the painting because of the painter. Final question, are you characterized as self-critical? Condemning yourself, getting back to self-loathing. Do you loathe yourself, hate yourself, criticize yourself? Live in this cycle of condemnation, self-condemnation. Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, then your understanding and practice of the Imago Dei needs recalibrating. Now, for the record, the self-esteem doctrine will not teach you how to answer no to any of these questions except for the last one. You see, the, the previous questions were all about other people, thinking rightly about other people. The last question was thinking rightly about yourself. And the self-esteem doctrine, it's not going to teach you how to think about other people. You don't care about other people because that is not how you or how the self-esteemer thinks directionally. The self-esteemer thinks directionally about themselves. And that is the point of self-esteem, to love yourself more than others. Now, some will argue that you must love yourself before you can love God. Of course, they will not give you any scripture to support that idea, though they, they do try to shoehorn this perspective into Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where Jesus said, love God, love others as yourself. And so they shoehorn that idea. Well, we have to love ourselves. We need to think about ourselves. It's a weird argument that does not consider what I just said about the Imago Dei. If you dislike yourself, or if you dislike anybody else, but if you dislike yourself, the, the solution is not better self-esteem. A better understanding of what it means for God to make you in His image. You see this idea, I mentioned James 3. I want to share that those two verses with you. 
James says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with the tongue, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Now take this verse here and apply it to yourself. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with the tongue, we curse ourselves, we loathe ourselves, we don't love ourselves, who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be. And for the individual, it says, well, we have to love ourselves first. Well, James is saying here that if you don't, the way you do that is by understanding that you're made in the image of God. Uh, the process is not going down to the bookstore or ordering one online about how to love yourself more. No, that, that's, not the, that's not the solution. If someone has harassed you to the point to where you are painfully insecure, or maybe that you're tempted to self-loathing, it would be a mistake to turn your focus onto yourself, as though learning to love yourself is the cure. Now, the cure is antithetical. Learning to love God, that's your cure. Paul said it this way, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is 2 Corinthians 3.18. No, not looking inward. Well, the Bible says that we need to love ourselves. No, you don't understand the image of God. Learning, loving, adoring, and worshiping God is the path to freedom. And that's just the beginning of the good news. Being made in the image of God puts us on the right path to how we must think about ourselves, but it's not the end of the journey to wholeness. We, like all humanity, are under the unrelenting challenges of total depravity. Now, that concept, it means that there is nothing about us that is unaffected by sin. Physically, we are wasting away, as Paul told us. Spiritually, as far as our souls are concerned, we are affected by total depravity. That is why we have to be born anew. We have to be born again because we are totally depraved. Our entire dichotomy, body and soul, is affected by sin. This teaching of total depravity is one more reason to run from self-esteem. Imagine this. Nothing in us is exempt from the marring of sin, including our thoughts about ourselves. Looking into the inner darkness of a depraved soul draws the searcher deeper into the cave of hopelessness. Paul says, we have become worthless. Now, I'm not sure if you would say that aloud, not in the public domain, unless you want to be canceled, deplatformed, marginalized, mocked, run out of town on a rail. But those are Paul's words. 
and they were given to him by the Spirit of God. In Romans 3.12, we have become worthless. That which was made in the image of God has now become worthless because of the fall of Adam, and everyone born has been born in Adam except for Jesus Christ, of course. And so there has been a marring of the Imago Dei. And there's no amount of secular, humanistic, psychological engineering that can fix our problem with God and with each other. We are thoroughly corrupted from the inside out. Sin has decimated the core of our very being. And because our culture denies God, they have no choice but to create a self-focused doctrine like self-esteem. And from there, they teach the innate human goodness and ability to do all things through themselves who strengthens themselves. It's a psychological worldview. As Paul said in Philippians 4, 11, 12, and 13, specifically in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, the culture would take that verse and invert it. I can do all things through me who strengthens me. And so they look inward in a delusional way. They see the innate goodness of man, not recognizing that they are totally depraved. They are blind people looking into total darkness in that cave that leads them deeper into despair and hopelessness. God teaches total depravity, how we are a dime a dozen, recyclable containers, clay pots, who will never save ourselves from ourselves. We need someone else from some other place. Jesus Christ, the first missionary, left his place, came to our place because the Imago Day was broken. And because of our brokenness, we couldn't see our way out. We create things like self-esteem so that we can turn ourselves further inward, only tying ourselves up in knots. The wealthiest and most famous people in our culture have died still chasing the holy grail of self-esteem. Many finish their journeys as empty as when they began. Job said in 121 that I came into this world naked and I leave this world naked. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.8, the eye is never full of seeing and the ear is never full of hearing. It is insatiable. You cannot fill up what is inside. We have to be transformed from the outside. Pursuing self-esteem will drive the soul into the ground. It is an insatiable pursuit of self-worth sought outside the transforming power of Christ. Our worth will come as Christ fills us with his righteousness we crucify ourselves through the incremental process of putting away our former manner of life with all its self-deception, self-delusion, and self-esteem. And we put on a new kind of person that's radically different from who we were as broken image bearers. That new person is like God. You see that in Ephesians 2.24. The more Christ-like we become, the more we will experience wholeness. And this is what Paul was saying in Colossians 1.28, warning every man, teaching every man to be whole in Christ. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. Many of you know this verse where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This idea of putting off the old self and renewing the mind and putting on the new self, Paul said it explicitly in Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Can you see the complexity and the impossible challenge of looking inward and esteeming all of that more so you can find wholeness. It will drive you in the ground. He went on to say, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then he said, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Self-esteem teaches us to look inward and untangle ourselves inwardly, that we rewire ourselves the Bible teaches that we need to die to ourselves and be crucified in Christ. We need to be born a second time. Self-esteem will not fix how we were born the first time. It will just make it worse. Tim Keller had the best quote about self-esteem, in my view, when he said, quote, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, or thinking less of myself. I'm not thinking more of myself, which is what self-esteem will do. I'm not thinking less of myself, which is what self-loathing will do. He says, it is thinking of myself less. It's having self-forgetfulness. Keller presents us with the gospel irony that we need to think rightly about how to be whole. It's a concept. That will be the Christian's stiffest challenge, thinking of myself less. The temptation with all of our soul problems, it is to turn inward, not outward. I mean, it makes sense, humanly speaking. Self-esteem is the wisdom of the world. And so if you are struggling inwardly, then turn outward. If you're struggling inwardly, turn to God. Love Him, not yourself. Esteem, esteem Him, not yourself. Esteem Him more than anything else. And as you esteem God more than anything else, you'll begin to change internally. If you throw in a pinch of serving others, loving God and loving others, well, that's just going to speed up the process to wholeness. When a person comes to me for counseling, I give them many things to do. Almost all of those things are focused on themselves, how to grow, how to mature, how to study, how to change, how to repent, etc. But there's one final thing that I give them in this process, and that is to go out and serve other people. I want them to go from a sin-centered person who has entrapped themselves by whatever their habituations have been to go from that sin-centered person to an other-centered person. I want them to learn how to love God and love others most of all. I'm trying to distance themselves from themselves, focusing themselves on other people. And this kind of wisdom sounds foolish. To look to God and others first 
when I have all these internal problems. But the truth is, it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God working in us. When you are captivated by the character and the attributes of our transcendent God, who has come to dwell in you, then your soul will begin to change, and you will begin thinking of yourself less. Now, if you are not a Christian, there is an initial first step that is non-negotiable. In order to get on this path to freedom, if you are listening to this and, and you are not a Christian, then what you have to do is to be born a second time. Now, what I would recommend, if you need help with that, I would just encourage you to write our ministry. Now, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com and scroll to the footer. Our uh, Get In Touch link is on every page of our website. It's in the footer. And if you click on that Get In Touch With Us, contact us, and say, hey, I was listening to this talk that you gave on the fallacy and futility of self-esteem. I'm intrigued. I'm interested. But I'm not on that path. I don't have the Spirit of God illuminating me. I don't have the Spirit of God empowering me. I haven't been transformed to really see these things and understand these things. They make sense, in a sense. But I, I need to become a Christian. I want that path of freedom. I have tried the world's ways. I have imbibed in the self-esteem movement. And it only further complicated my soul. By the way, this was me prior to 1984. God regenerated me in 1984, and that came after a, a long journey, a circuitous journey through many dangers, toils, and snares. And part of that journey was reading a lot of self-help books. I think my favorite genre of books outside of, of Christian books is entrepreneurial books, business books. And I have read scores of them and love them, still read them occasionally today. But those books always lead you into thinking better of yourself. Go, fight, win. You are somebody. Love yourself, etc. But there was still a void in my soul. No matter how much they preached to me to the power of positive thinking or uh, acres of diamonds or the magic of thinking big, etc., etc., it did not satisfy this thing that I felt inside my soul. It was a growing discontentment, and no matter how successful I became, just as I was saying earlier, some of the wealthiest and most famous people in the world, they end their journey similar to the way they begun their, began their journey. As Job said in 121, they came in naked, they went out naked, and I was recognizing that I was uh, putting a ring in a pig's snout, as the Bible would talk about, that I'm still a pig at the end of the day, and I still wallow in the mud at the end of the day. I needed to be created anew. Now, perhaps that's you. You need to be created anew. We call that being born again, to be regenerated, that God imposes himself on your life so that you can be untangled from what has captured you. I was there. Every Christian listening to this was there also. There is a fallacy 
and there is futility of self-esteem. Now, if you want to read what I just shared with you, please, yes, go to lifeovercoffee.com, and you can read what I shared just a word for word. It is yours. Enjoy it. Benefit from it. Share it with others. Also, go to our store, lifeovercoffee.com, and you can get the free downloadable digital book. It is yours. Get all the other ones as well. And let 1,000 of your favorite, of your best friends know about these free books so they can get them also. I didn't write these books to sit in our digital store and to gain digital, uh, to gather digital dust. No, I wrote them to give them away. And the thing about digital books is you can give them away ad infinitum. There is no end. Uh, they don't have to be printed. They are right there and you can get them, put them on your devices and share them with others. You can print them off as well. Use them as Bible studies uh, like my uh, lady friends in Bozeman, Montana, who is using uh, boasting in weakness as a, a ladies' Bible study, and you can do that too. This book here on self-esteem would be outstanding uh, for any group of people because you will find within every church there are people who are really beholding to the self-esteem movement and the self-esteem mantra. I would just appeal to you to be careful as you communicate this to them. We don't want to be harsh or unkind. We want to be patient with them because this is a faith issue. People believe what they believe by faith. And when we begin to pull the rug out from under them, the foundation upon which they stand, or one of the planks upon the foundation in which they stand, like the self-esteem plank, we need to understand that. They're standing on that by faith, believing that this is the path forward, believing that this is going to make them better. When in reality, you know that it won't, but they don't have that reality. And so you want to be careful as you teach them, but by all means, use this book, Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem, and begin to walk them through it carefully. And at the end of every chapter, I have questions, and so I want to share with you the questions from this chapter, The Fallacy and the Futility of Self-Esteem. Question number one, describe your pursuit of God. Is it more than just studying Him? Does it also include how you practically and apply what you're learning about Him to your life? I talked about this at the beginning. This is a huge problem in Christianity. We are knowledge collectors. It's like we just can't get enough of knowledge. Now, that's a good thing, but the road stops there. And that is not how we experience transformation. You can't sit and soak. You can't go to endless Bible studies. You, you can't learn about the Bible alone. We have to apply it practically. And so I'm asking, describe your pursuit of God. Is it more than just studying Him? I trust it is. Now, by the way, our ministry is built for this very purpose because I was one of those Christians. I was in Bible college. I got a degree in theology. I got a degree in education as well. And after those two degrees, I found myself in, in the worst place in my entire Christian life. My world had fallen apart. My feet were firmly planted in midair. And it was a horrible season in my life. And guess what? I didn't know how to apply the Bible practically in my life. 
Well, through many years and a dangerous journey, I, I came to the place, and, and fortunately, and by the mercy and kindness of God, I, I went and got a master's degree in biblical counseling. And, and through that process, I learned that theology is awesome. It is absolutely essential. It is foundational. But if you don't stack application on top of your theological pursuits, you too can find your feet firmly planted in midair, and you won't be able to disciple yourself out of a paper bag. And so does your learning and studying about God and listening to all of these sermons, does it include how to practically apply what you're learning about Him to your life? Now, if it's not, then I want to give you an invitation to come to our coffee shop. Come to our Sanctification Center because this is where we excel. As testified, as affirmed by thousands of people since 2008, we, we take the knowledge of God, the Bible, and we teach people how to apply it. And if you want thousands upon thousands of free resources, come to lifeovercoffee.com, search our coffee shop, and take our stuff home with you and use it. It will take you literally years to consume all that has been produced at lifeovercoffee.com. And so if you want to grow in application, well, here's the door. You have to walk through it. Number two, are you characterized by thinking more about yourself or more about God? Please explain your answer. These are great discipleship questions. These are great small group questions. You could take any one of these questions. You could take the first one about application, and you could run with it for a long time. Or this second one here, are you correct characterized by thinking more about yourself, turning inward, or more about God? We have to understand the cure, and directionally, the cure runs away from us. The cure is by thinking about God and others more than ourselves. Number three. Has your understanding of the Imago Dei trained you to respect all humanity, including yourself, by the way? You remember earlier I was talking about the person that tries to shoehorn that we need to love ourselves into the two great commandments, and that's not what that is teaching. But more than that, what they don't understand is the Imago Dei. They should respect themselves. It's understood that we love ourselves because of the painter. And so we don't have to work at loving ourselves if we understand the painter who made the painting. Then we do respect ourselves and love ourselves. So we can stop all that and we can obey the two great commandments now of loving God and others more than ourselves. And so the question is, has your understanding of the Imago Dei trained you to respect all humanity? Now, this is a tough one, and I realize it in the culture, climate in which we live, because there is so much animosity in this world. I am not suggesting in any way that you should agree with everybody or any particular person. But we want to be careful how we talk about them. Respect them as much as we could, as much as we can, made in the image of God. But we don't devalue people, and so we want to be careful. Number four, have you learned Paul's lessons from a lesson from Philippians 4, 11 through 13, where he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but actually in verses 11 and 12, he said that no matter his condition, I can be full, I can be empty. It doesn't matter. 
He was content because he could do everything through Christ who strengthened him. Are we finding Christ's strength in us, or are we still looking through or by self-reliant means to strengthen ourselves, which is what the self-esteem movement is? And then finally, number five, a new person in Christ acts like Christ. And so here's a long-form assignment for you. Would you be willing to take the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, hope, etc., that you would take those nine elements there and compare yourself to them? A new person in Christ acts like Christ. And what you see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, well, you see the characteristics, characteristics of Christ, love, joy, peace, etc., that is a picture. That is a portrait of Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we want to act like Christ. And so uh, taking some time to do this life assignment here, this life project, probably could be beneficial. Not only you doing it, but also doing it with a friend. A friend who is not afraid of you. A friend who won't rubber stamp you. A friend who will speak courageously, also compassionately, with you. Then they'll Look at those nine elements, and, and they will help you in the assessment, and you would do the same for them. Now, perhaps there is an area that you need to change as you go through that list of what Christ looks like, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I would appeal to you to write out a specific and practical plan to transform. If there's anything in that list that you need to change about yourself as you compare yourself to Christ. Again, this is the fallacy and futility of self-esteem. If we can help you in any way, please come to our coffee shop. We have so many free resources. Now, we also have a supporting memberships uh, where you can go behind the paywall, and I think you should. I think everybody who can should, uh, because there we have conversations every day. I produce five videos at least a week. I produce three today. That is typical. And so anywhere from five to 12 videos a week as I'm training these Christians uh, who are members of our site. Now, that's the part that's pay to play. They also ask me questions. One lady today sent in a, a, a situation between a mom and a daughter that she is discipling, and she was asking our community, how can I best uh, help this, these people who are in this dysfunctional and spiraling relationship? Well, this is what we do. And so if you want to be part of that community, then please uh, go to our uh, join link uh, at lifeovercoffee.com and learn how to become part of our community. We also have courses that you can take as well. And so enjoy and share the free stuff. Some of you, uh, please consider becoming part of our community. You will benefit, and we will be able to equip you to go out and help others. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.